Oh, what's up, everybody? My name is Gift Gift Time at Baylu, and this is Rugby Swag. I think the minute I stepped on our practice field for rugby, the calling happened. Uh, an eight-year plan to be on the team, and I was in it within two years. Don't wait until you are a pro to be a pro. Right. And I walk around with a rugby ball sometimes, and they're like, what is this child on? It looks like it was a heavy. Yeah. It's up. It's not up. You know, that's the first time I played like professional. I'm making rugby money. How can I make money outside of it? And there's two Scottish guys and they said, oh, you're um, you're here for the movie. That rugby is a game for all shapes and sizes, all cultural um, aspects. He looked at me and he says, you guys are awesome. Yo, welcome to Rugby Swag, the show where we are here to change the ecosystem of rugby by talking to people about the opportunities they have found, created, or taken advantage of via rugby, as well as what is going on so we can continue to change the game. All right, I want to make sure that we're getting that in. And before we get started, please, 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 if you are listening to this on podcast, by all means, please follow the show if you haven't started to already, because every follow adds to us being able to make another big change to the ecosystem of rugby and develop it into the machine that we really know it should be. And if you're watching on YouTube, can you please send me a subscribe and a like and just one more, hit that notification. And lastly, y'all can always go check us out on social media. We're on Instagram at Rugby Swag Show. Uh, Instagram at Rugby Swag Show. Follow us in. We'll be able to try and talk and put stuff up. Make sure that we can give the daily dives that's going on within this rugby verse and how we can be able to continue to build it up from there. Y'all. We have a great show for you, and by we, I mean me, have a great show for you. Uh, first and foremost, we have a returning guest. We got Mick Feely of Citizen Sports Foundation coming straight out of Colorado. Great conversation, kind of responding to some stuff that I talked about two weeks ago. You guys can check that episode 74. It is definitely one to be able to go into on what can be done to help USA Rugby, basically. But we really go into some depth about what it is that's going on in the world and how it is on a business side. Because you know what? It is as important to understand the business as well as it is to understand the sports and uh, uh, field playing side itself. But before we get started with all that, I want to talk about a couple things that we have happened over the course of this last week. Really the last weekend. And... Significant of what that means for us here in rugby. Now, first and foremost, biggest, biggest shout out to our men and women at Dubai Sevens. We finally look like the U.S. again. Did you see what we did at Dubai Sevens? We ended up third and fourth place. Shout out to Capstan's Kayvon Williams for the men, Nia Tapper for the women. Like, we came in and were smashing people. Mind you, hey. We went to third and fourth, third for women, fourth for men, but we came out smashing, all right? Like, did you guys see that highlight that Nia Tapper dropped? By the way, big shout-out to HSBC because the more I realize the highlights that come from World 7 stuff, the more I realize that World Rugby might not be as directly touching the uh, media component of the HSBC you know, World 7 series, even though, because World Rugby never lets good highlights out. Never does. Never does. Not not, not, not unless somebody else is uh, handling that. And I say this because the Rugby World Cup is clear evidence of that every single time. But in Dubai 7s, 
Yo, big, this big play by Nia against France. Just murking people. Cheddar Ember, murking people. Like, that's what you want to see from USA Rugby. That is the USA Rugby identity. Might not always be the fastest, even though she was. Might not always be the most technically skilled, even though they, they were showing it out. But there's no way anybody is going to be taking us down in any one tackle or one person. All right? You're going to see us be able to be physically dominant on the field. And that, ah, oh, that got me excited. I was like, okay, now I get why you guys didn't end up going to the Rugby World Cup. All right? This is how you can make a proper selection. Now, mind you, I'd like to see us now continue it on into other formats. And, you know, they're going to be in Cape Town this week, um, weekend. But, God, dog, oh, that got me excited. That got me hyped up. I was, I was so happy for that one. I was like, let's go, America. <laughs> oh, let's hope to be able to continue. But I wanted to be put that first and foremost. So you're not going to criticize without crediting. That's how we get it done, and I think there's the inspiration from what's been going on. I'm looking at a better 2023, 2024, 20, nah, and I, I think that's when we get the next, uh, so until RW7s or so, 2026, I guess, technically, but even there. Olympics, actually, 2024, that's, that's where it was. That's where we're setting up for these next Olympics, and we're going to actually show out and actually get where we go to. Ah, man, I, I bloody love it. I bloody love it. <laughs> The second thing I really wanted to talk about, and this is the one that I wanted to hold on more before we get to our interview with Mick Feely, which if you don't want to listen to this one, because I am about to talk about the Deion Sanders situation, leaving Jackson State and HBCUs, and uh, you guys particularly know how much HBCUs mean to me and uh, the significance that I feel that they have. But if you don't, you're about to hear it. So if you don't want to hear it, just look at the time code. I'm going to put them into the description, then you can jump to the interview right away. But biggest story that's going on in sports uh, today, uh, this this week, was Deion Sanders moving from Jackson State University to Colorado, University of Colorado, to take over the program. And if you're not aware of the significance, there's been a lot of uproar on it because people, it's really split. You know, some people feel that Deion Sanders uh, is taking advantage of an opportunity and increasing and uh, uh, and being able to go into a Power 5, Pac-12, 10, 5, whatever the number is now, uh, conference school uh, that may not actually seem that great of a, of a position, uh, but he's going there. They're going to be paying him a little bit, and they think that's a good idea. The other half of it is the betrayal and the feeling that Deion Sanders used Jackson State as a stepping stone, that Deion Sanders is um, basically uh, uh, a hypocrite in, in essence and, and in, in essence uh, uh, kind of pimped the system to say the least. Now, to the details of where it is, I, it's uh, where I stand on it is I'm probably actually leaning a little bit more onto the uh, uh, the opportunity because I do feel like he fulfilled what he did. But that being said, it's not without understanding the significance. And I'm going to tell you why this matters to rugby. All right, the significance that an HBCU has within the Black American community and within the Black community in general. Um, but I'm going to say particularly the black American community is a fact that its existence is because other schools exclusively uh, uh, rejected 
black students uh, from being able to attend their university. So the HBCUs had to be created to uh, facilitate higher education for uh, black Americans uh, in the U.S. And continue to be able to build, be a building backbone for much of our uh, uh, generational education in time. So the significance of being able to be a cornerstone in the community is huge, and to be able to uproot, uh, uplift that is huge. The other catch-22, the other kicker on it, not the other catch-22, the other thing that's significant about the HBCUs is that HBCUs are some of the most maligned universities within the governmental system. What do I mean by that? It's that they are often actively tried to be shut down, actively underfunded by state governments, uh, and actively dismissed um, from, from, from uh, many uh, of the resources that your PWI, which is a predominantly white institution, uh, university institutions will typically get from the state government. I know this from watching personally uh, Southern University in Baton Rouge. In Baton Rouge, we have basically three um, college system, colleges systems that exist. Uh, we have LSU, which is, of course, the flagship school of Louisiana. We have what Louisiana State University. Uh, we have... Southern University, which is the flagship HBCU in uh, Louisiana. Uh, people can say Grambling all they want. It's not. It, it's Southern. All right. And then we have Baton Rouge Community College. Now, under our governor, maybe about five, six years ago or so, uh, under uh, uh, Bobby Jindal, the man actively worked to siphon funds from um, from Southern System to be able to put into Baton Rouge Community College. Basically, his belief was Southern is irrelevant. Basically, HBCUs in their, their selves are not relevant. You can do what you did in the HBCU at a community college, which already is just the level of insult that goes right there is wild. And basically try to broke... Uh, tried to financially break Southern uh, to be able to fund a community college that simply would just act as a feeder to LSU so that there wouldn't be a state government that has to worry about uh, uh, paying for a Southern University system, which a system that impacts New Orleans and system that has a resonating effect across the rest of the nation, the rest of the state, and then would eventually even a rambling in and it of itself, too which has its own issues. This isn't uncommon in other places, all right? It is absolutely not uncommon in other states. And so whenever we talk about, like, needing to protect HBCUs, it's more significant than just, like, saying, oh, it's systemic racism and just us using it as a catchphrase. Like, it's legitimately a thing. And so whenever it comes to the third point, which is the insecurity of having uh, talent drained from HBCUs going to PWIs. Another thing that is a real concept, another perfect point, was before uh, upper integration. Most black athletes 
went to HBCUs. It's where you get your biggest names. Jerry Rice coming out of that realm. Uh, Walter Payton coming out of that realm. You have a lot of basketball. I know football mostly. But, you know, you have these great athletes, these great legends that came from HBCUs. And then as soon as integration occurred, of course, there was the brain drain, the talent drain. And, you know, these athletes going to all these uh, PWIs that have more resources, uh, better facilities, uh, more reach, more viewership. And it subsequently uh, created a deficit within the HBCUs to the point where, you know, you, you get the talent. But what always remained was the culture, which ultimately also started to some extent get seeped into these other institutions, which uh, culture naturally does. But whenever you, everything keeps getting taken out but not credited, it becomes a strong issue and problem. So the Deion Sanders situation kind of was almost a beacon of light that goes to the HBCUs, uh, and, and namely in through Jackson State, which is the, the University of Walter Payton. The, 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 the factor was you had a guy who was a superstar – is a superstar coming into an HBCU, not just a star, not just a well-known player, a superstar, had the attitude, the gravitas, the, the knowledge, the technical skills, the, the credibility to be able to talk about this and actually be significant in, in, what the, um, in, in, in making a change. And that's what he said he came to do, to come and make a change, change the perspective of what HBCUs have on the uh, uh, in the athletic world, particularly in the football world, up work the, change the mentality of HBCUs within the community, increase the facilities, get better reach, be leave be better than what has been occurring now. And you know HB and it got his his uh, motivation was the George Floyd case, which honestly has been the bigger motivation for a lot of companies to bring HBCUs to the light in reality. I want to say maybe the last last six years, it's been reached outside of the community that already was either in attending, participating, or had some direct connection to HBCUs. The last maybe five years, we've started to see a little bit more increase and a little bit more recognition uh, towards HBCUs. But with that being said, with that being said, Deion Sanders was, came in, shown light. Jackson State was able to get go you know, 10 and 2 the season before and be able to get so much attention. And we know about the recruiting Travis Hunter. Well, if you don't know, Travis Hunter was a uh, five-star, uh, which is a top-level recruit. Top, highest of the highest recruit. He was the number one uh, overall player. He was the number one um, defensive player uh, coming out of high school and was recruited by Dion to come to Jackson State, which is basically unheard of in HBCUs in modern era. A lot of people are going to say five stars have come, but usually five stars you typically have come in either prior to 1994 or they came in through – um, going th after having to go through um, uh, what they call um, the uh, it, it's basically like 
a lower level of football. Like, if you're not eligible, you need – it's like community colleges and stuff. You have eligibility issues, and then you, you can't continue on with the school that you have, and so you have to kind of build up your grades, and then you enter back into the recruiting bed. So you'll, you'll have five star former five stars, but very, very rarely, almost never do you get a direct five-star, well-known athlete in the high school recruiting realm that bypasses schools like Alabama at the time, Clemson's, uh, LSU Georgia's, Michigan's, where they are able to say, we're going to go to a university that does not uh, typically have the reach, the resources, the facilities, or necessarily the access to a national championship in the traditional sense. Rocked the sports world here in the U.S. Rocked it. So I say all this to say the significance of what Dion did and putting the spotlight on HBCUs cannot be uh, quantified. Actually, it can. It was almost $185 million in economic value, almost another $100 uh, $100 million in uh, press and uh, uh, promotion. Like, it, it, it was significant. It was significant. And he did. He's basically gone back-to-back SWAC, SWAC titles and uh, SWAC is a conference and about to aim, get aim for another uh, uh, national championship. Again, so I come back to say this because I need to give the background to the significance of what it means for rugby. When we talk about HBCU rugby, when we talk about rugby in HBCUs, I need it to be understood that we're not talking about creating an element that provides us more athletes or better access into the black community or better access into what we uh, consider as, as elevating the game through talent pool. No. That's not what the, that's not what it means. This is exactly what people who attend HBCUs, participate in HBCUs, support HBCUs absolutely want to protect against. It's another version of a talent drain. Basically like, hey, we just want to use you as a resource, but we don't actually want to resource you. No. Putting rugby inside an HBCU means that you are tapping into not just a culture. You're tapping into a sacred culture. You're tapping into an opportunity to not just get the hearts and minds of people, but to be able to change generationally the entire culture and thought process that hits not just the community inside, but in in fact impacts everything outside of that HBCU community. That means I I can say from my own uh, experience as the founder and director of the HBCU Rugby Classic that a lot of people in rugby itself here in the U.S. and definitely outside the U.S. had no clue what an HBCU was, which was always shocking to me because, again, had one that was right down the street from where I lived, literally was a 10-minute, 15-minute drive from where I live, and you find people that don't even can't say HBCU or HB they go HBU or HCU or HSBC or you know because of the fact that it was just not in the forefront of their minds like people have a concept of black colleges even the ideas and understanding of it is not fully understood but what you're tapping into isn't just entertainment you are tapping into culture and significance in that and to see what is going on with uh, that, how people feel about Dion leaving tells you how much it means to make sure that if we are going to enter into this, and not we're going to, I mean, we are. Like, it, it is happening. 
but it needs to be understood. This isn't your chance to go start talent draining. This is your chance to be able to utilize it, learn, and add that into the community threshold of what it means to be a U.S. rugby person or even more wider scale to be in the rugby community as a diverse cultural um, uh, sports entity. And I feel like rugby has this opportunity beyond anything else, not even soccer, which is the single most popular, single most technically diverse cultural sport in the freaking world. I don't think, I personally don't think that it has the ceiling to truly accept cultural variation. It actually just has the capacity to be able to, as I believe it, continue to drain talent into a few segmented areas, and then, of course, because they've had 150 years of consistent, call it what it is, good business in terms of how it's filtered uh, its, its, its talent and its uh, fandom base into an element where they've had the ability to have the widest range of population possibility. Rugby as a young business sport, not a young sport, but a young business sport has the ability to be far more recognizable as a culturally, uh, uh, very, uh, 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 a various culturally um, strengthened sport where there's identity, individual identity of culture found within the sport encapsulated within that rugby uh, communal uh, uh, concept, uh, that rugby communal cultural concept and with here in the u.s hbcus are the perfect example of where that starts and that's why it is so important that not only do we continue to support it not only do we continue to try and build and facilitate people towards them but it also will be significant into how we are able to recognize our styling Uh, again like i said we're not trying to talent drain or resource drain it's about trying to intertwine the culture and pull from that and recognize where it comes from and utilize that as part of our identity moving forward, part of our identity coming into what the next game is, coming into how we do our stuffs. And it will have a significant value overall, a huge, huge value that you actually will not be able to quantitate uh, within the development of rugby in the U.S. and subsequently the development of rugby around the world. Because of the fact that it will be as subtle while as obvious as it could ever be. And it's one of the reasons, it's almost exclusively one of the reasons why I actively, actively push for uh, rugby into HBCUs. And I will actively always be trying to make this event bigger and bigger and bigger and better as you ever can imagine. Uh, It is huge in this element. Absolutely huge in this element. And while we're talking about that, since I uh, may as well transition, don't forget to go get your tickets for the HBC Rugby Classic. Y'all just go to hbcrugbyclassic.com and go ahead and get your early bird tickets. This is about the cheapest it's going to be. The deal ends December 25th. By Christmas, this will be done. So basically, yo, get yourself your Christmas present for your kids, for your family, for your friends, whoever 
for the HBCU Rugby Classic. You get some great entertainment taking place. Washington, D.C. at Howard University, one of the creme de la creme universities uh, within the HBCUs and definitely one of the creme de la cremes of uh, the U.S. We're talking about the school that gave us Chadwick Boseman, the school that gave us Zora Neale Hurst, the author, the school that gave us the great Thurgood Marshall, the first black Supreme Court justice. This is going to be happening March 31st to April 2nd. We're bringing in the schools from Morehouse, Prairie View A&M, and of course Howard, high school programs, and of course the classic club versus international, USA versus the world competition, going in even harder. You guys don't want to miss this. And that's not on top of the music festival where we bring in some of the hottest artists in the game today, locally and uh, nationally. So, guys, check it out. Go to HBCURugbyClassic.com and get your ticket today. So, with that all being said, yo, I want to enter, get us into Mick Feely, president of Citizen Sports Foundation, my friend, and being able to talk about some great rugby business stuff. Let's get it going. Check it out. Hey, everybody. This is just the break train sitting out a personal little video diary to all you people out there where I am going to document me riding most of the way between Singapore and Tokyo for the 2019 Rugby World Cup. I needed help, and it came from Louisiana. We in Singapore, baby! Gift from Gift Time Rugby USA is an extroverted tour de force. But what unites us is a hunger for adventure. After KL, Kuala Lumpur. Gift, where are we? We're in Our love of Asian rugby culture. One, two, three, center! Yeah! Rugby is, is starting to develop here in Cambodia for women as well. Valkyries, the mighty, mighty Valkyries! We're out here, we're running out of energy, we're running out of money, and we're feeling isolated. And yet at that critical moment, Friends, family, sometimes complete strangers come on board. Before you know it, we're back in the game. Tokyo, here we come. Malaysia, Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam. Watch the full adventure at crugby.vhx.tv. That's C like S-E-E rugby.vhx.tv. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the next episode of Rugby Swag Show because uh, we changed it formerly known as Grow Rugby, where we still speak to people about the opportunities that they found, created, and taken advantage of via rugby, but even more because there is so much more to rugby in that as it is in any swag bag. We got back on the show again, Mick Feely, straight up Citizens, uh, Citizen Sports, uh, Citizen Sports Foundation, and uh, bro. I'm always excited because we've been needing to do this for a hot minute. Obviously, it's been a lot of up and down and uh, just a schedule for uh, areas. But Mick, man, dude, I'm glad to have you back on. Thanks for having me. Um, I appreciate it. I think it's been about a year or so, maybe 15, yeah. 15 months, something. 
a year and a year and some change. Yeah. A year and some change. Yeah. I have more hair. <laughs> <laughs> you know, look, look, you said, hey, hey, we don't need to carry all this weight because I got so much cool in me. All right. <laughs> no, but you know, it's 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 been obviously we last time we talked, it was a, a great conversation into the interworkings of of rugby and a very intense. Uh, you had some strong opinions about USA rugby, and uh, I think some of them kind of came into fruition, needless to say. And then we're still seeing the the build, and you know, uh, uh, there's a lot still happening now. And so coming back to it, uh, obviously, uh, I, I started uh, a little conversation last week about what I felt was needed for. US, what's needed for rugby in the U.S. And, you know, one of the things that I really did speak about was the fact that I considered myself very sports culture xenophobic. And I need to make sure I emphasize sports culture xenophobic, uh, uh, not xenophobic. Say so what? Especially being an immigrant yourself now. Exactly, right? So, <laughs> so, so I, had, I, had to, I had to express my e- extreme nationalism when it comes to U.S. sports culture. Um, but I, I know there were some things that now you have a lot better perspective and we want to be able to talk about, but still speaking on what what's going on in the U.S. And then add to that, I, did you get a chance to read Goff's article as well? I, I think yeah. he did. Definitely did. Yeah. So uh, kind of wrapping within that, since this has been the theme of the, 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 the last three weeks, um, you know, kind of kicking in. Uh, I want to get your ideas, on, your thoughts initially on um, obviously USA Rugby men not making it through uh, to the Rugby World Cup and what that means. So the floor is yours, my friend. I'm not really surprised, to be honest. Um, watching the games um, earlier on in the year, I think it was Uruguay. Yeah. Um, obviously then Chile. I went to that game. Actually, that was on my birthday. Chile? Um, oh. <laughs> yeah, nice uh, yeah, it was in F- Infinity Park, right? Correct. Yeah, I live about yeah. a mile away, so it wasn't too bad. But... Um, you know, again, I think um, trying to play a style of rugby that doesn't particularly suit the skill set of the players. Right. Um, you know, there's it, we, we just seem very risk averse. And, and a lot of the commentary, I think Alex Goff referenced it as well in terms of all three of those games um, or those series were we weren't very good against a counterattack from a kick chase point of view. I think that was where a lot of the tries were scored from deep. Right. Um, I, I I just I, I agree. You know, we need a we need an American identity, and I always sort of think back to the the 2017 World Cup mm-hmm. for the women. With the women, yep. And and I don't think a lot of people noticed it, but um, they they swapped um, Portia Woodman to the next wing, to the right wing from the left wing, so that she could mark Nia Tapper. Yeah, and, and they thought, well, why, why, why is that? Well, they're afraid of Naya, and what does Naya represent? She represents pace and power, and, and that's size. really what American and size, and and that's really what American rugby, American sport is all about. You've got f- unbelievable physical specimens. Yeah. Um. So let's use that, you know, and and I think we we need to do a a, a better job of trying to um, come up with a game plan or strategy that that allows those individual attributes, those physical attributes to, to be expressed more. Now you, you've got to have a balance. There's skill set, set piece, right. all kinds of different things. And ultimately I think discipline is what kind of 
undid the men, undid the women as well in a lot of issues. You know, the, the penalty counts are, are savage. And, and, and I think that comes back down to game understanding, knowing the laws, knowing the situation. Right. Um, pressure is a big part of that as well. You know, I don't, I don't particularly think um, we should uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think we just need to take a little bit of a step back and, and, and look at it and say, okay, well, what can we do to improve um, some of the skill sets, some of the decision-making along with um, refining a strategy that sort of better complements the athletes that are on the pitch. You know, it, it looks like we're a million miles away, but we're, we're really not for the women. I think the men have got a much tougher climb yeah. um, to get to the top, but that was always the case. You know, they've, They've got professional rugby elsewhere in the world. MLR's doing its thing. And um, it's just going to be a long slog, really, getting up that, getting up that hill. Yeah. So, you know, it, I, I don't necessarily agree we need to fire everyone. Agreed. I think that that's a natural part where a lot of people are going to re be replaced anyway. New leadership in certain positions, whether it's head coach, director, rugby, stuff like that for the men or right. the women. Um but ultimately, a lot of the personnel are going to stay uh, from the administration. So we have to find a way to make sure that um, they all kind of sync up and, and people can improve. It's not just the players that need to improve. It's, it's the administration um, from USA Rugby. It's all of us as, as rugby players, coaches, referees, administrators within the community at all levels. Um, and, I, and I think we need to maybe play without fear. I feel like that, that the game strategy for the men in particular, but also the women, they looked afraid to lose. Well, play to win. You know, play right. to win. So I, I think to speak to, to, to those, so kind of off the top of the bat, I think a lot of the issues that we, we talk about in that, where it comes to the discipline, the, the, the utilizing the skill sets, that always comes back to what we always know, identity. Identity first and foremost, top to bottom. Um, and knowing that we have that, I, and it's been, I, I love that you re referenced to 2017, because in my opinion, I feel like that was the most peak U.S. rugby format that we had had, men or women. I, I think top to bottom it was. It was our aggressive play. We saw our best players match up. And despite the fact that it was a team that ended up in fourth, uh, it was a very close Fourth, like the distance between Canada, uh, U.S., Australia, New Zealand, uh, and uh, and uh, Britain, uh, more so, were was not so was not so distant as I as it, it felt before, and it felt like everybody at least knew what their job was. It was also the time that we actually were now combining the USA sevens with the fifteens, yeah. yeah. and I I thought that was one that in this Rugby World Cup 2021-2022 was super missing because, you know, that's basically all the skill athletes that seem to be honed in the most. Uh, and then even from this uh, men's qualifiers, it, it felt like we've been rehashing the same guys from 2018, but just never adding in those sevens guys as well too, which we've never actually seen them all really come onto the field at the same time, but for uh, the Olympics uh, in, in some, and where we just had a little bit of a transfer over of a couple 15s guys over there. So um, 
it, it feels like that element has prevented us from being able to see a full maximization of the skills on the field. But I think even to my point, and, and I, I'm in agreement with you, I don't think everybody needs to be wiped out from the administration. Obviously, like you said, natural changes are going to come. But I've always felt like the biggest issues that always come with the U.S. has been what happens off the field. I think we have played the game of what are what's our talent? What's our talent? What's our talent? Over and over and over again for the better part of the last, what, 60 years now? Uh, doing this over and over and over and over again. But the thing that never seems to get solved is what we're doing uh, behind the scenes. Where is the money coming from? How are we you know, elevating our best players? Like you, you spoke about the MLR, and I appreciate the MLR for its name, and it's doing efforts to kind of push the brand forward. But I found that you know, whenever you get things like – I think it was Steve Lewis who talked about like the MLR is not about developing the national team. It's about making money. But it's also horribly losing money at the same time. So it's what is the purpose of you being here? Or, you know, the concept of, you know, we're supposed to get day-to-day play, day-to-day uh, -to -day training for, for players. But, you know, we have players who can barely make ends meet. And while I get it for a startup, I, I recognize early stage uh, development. I don't recognize poor strategy in projecting the name like i think i remember one of the times earliest was whenever um you know I, I think uh john goodman was used as a celebrity inspiration uh, a celebrity spokesperson for for one of the teams and i was like john goodman john who's been watching john goodman since since 1995 like why are you bringing this in but it's also again an understanding of the people who are in that position uh who own the team know what they know because that's of a certain era so i feel like there's been huge disconnects when it comes to what actually works as a marketing tool to um actually attract new talent attract uh uh better sponsors attract maybe not necessarily investors but new consumer bases new customers and and bringing them in to uh address themselves into this sport that becomes clearly has all the tools needed to be able to thrive it literally has all the tools except for these commerce elements to it so whenever we're talking about what happens with the national team it always seems to me it just it comes back to how are we doing our commerce how are we doing it, it? Everything else, how are we doing? Our coach doesn't want to live in the U.S. Why? They would feel better. Well, if we paid them more or if we held more or if we could pay more and make it to coach to stay, that plays in. Or what do we do with our, our training combines or anything like that? So for me, it always seems to come back to what are we doing from the commercial end? And that even impacts the grassroots side too, which we know this is a worldwide problem. <laughs> well, I think when you sort of, when you ask the question, you know, what, how are we doing with our commerce? I think the answer is always poorly. Um, right. I think there's a lot of different elements to that. I'd, first of all, I would respond and say that if you look at the balance sheet for USA Rugby, uh, the coaches are all well compensated, yeah. well enough compensated to demand that they live in the US. Um, I think that that needs to be a policy change. Right. Um, it, it's just, it, it it's impossible to get out and talk to coaches, talk to players, look at up and coming youth, look at up and coming college stars, etc. when 
you live in South Africa or London yeah. or, or somewhere else in the world. Um, is what it is. I think people people got jobs for supposedly we've been able to to deliver on the field and and yeah. that's fine that's the decision that that usa rugby and the, and the ceo like ross and, and dan Payne as high performance that they're, they're decisions that they have to make um or emily bidwell at the time for rob kane but um i think that that's just part of the learning sort of thing uh, you know i think change change is important but i think growth is is more important so right. we don't want to just swap one for the other and just we, continue to hamster wheel over and over yeah, and over again. Make sure that that we grow and learn from the experience. So you know that would be a sort of easy one to fix, just as a policy change. You know, look right. at although there's sort of controversy about it now, but some of the like Wales, for instance, the sixty cap rule. You know, they don't pick players for Wales if they don't play in Wales. Right. You know, we wouldn't be the first one to do it. We'd just apply it to the coaches. Fair enough. Um, I think in terms of sort of the commerce side, um, you know, what is our product? I think we right. have a misconception that um, rugby is the product. It's not. Um, both MLR and, and USA Rugby, their main product is fans. Yeah. Now, from a USA rugby or a non-profit perspective, that means memberships, but membership or dues is just short for subscriptions, subscribers. Yes. Well, subscribers in tech or for over the top stuff like the rugby network or viewership so on social media for, for the MLR, it's the same thing. It all comes back down to fans. And I think this is where you can get into a discussion about a European versus American model. But yeah. when you talk about, um, American sports culture and this idea of exceptionalism and, and the individual it's um, we're promoting the players above, above the fans and, and really talent is a byproduct of producing fandom, you know, and that starts with mass participation. Two thirds of all rugby fans were or are rugby players. And that's true for basically all sport. They're, they're, mm. they're fans of the specific sport being viewed um, were or are participants in the specific sport. So we we have to come at this from a, a ground-up uh, approach. The top-down approach isn't working. We've been doing this for years. You know, we talked about my various issues or complaints. Um, I raised something in 2015, 2017, 2021. It's, it's been the same thing. Um, maybe that's why I've lost all my hair. I don't know. <laughs> People, look at what you've done. Look at what you've yeah. done. I've put on a bit of weight since, so that's all right. I was skinny as hell last time. But um, it, it just if we understand that, that fans are the product, you know, look, where do sports teams get their money from? They get it from the fans and they get it from sponsors. Where do sponsors no. get their money from? They get it from, from fans, fans because yeah. they're consumers. So we have to find a, a way to make those different elements work together. And right now, I feel like we've got this sort of extraction model. It's kind of like fossil fuels versus renewable energy. And, mm. and fans are being milked. And I, I'm sick to death of hearing, you know, talk about fan engagement, fan engagement. And something they were talking about for, for um, World Rugby, they had a meeting the other day and sort of, you know, let's put up 
on the big screen to en enhance fan engagement, let's put up on the big screen an explanation of why the TMO decision is being reviewed or why the TMO is involved and things like that. It's like, so rugby has become so boring. The only way to make it more interesting is to put a bunch of nonsense. It makes right. And like, it's this... supposed to be about the game on the field, not right. words on the big screen. I, it just doesn't seem to me like it's an appropriate response. And I, I... I think this comes down to it always comes back to the insecurity of rugby itself. And it, this is one thing that I think now watching other sports grow. And I, I think the only sport that I I hate that we try and copy because it looks like the impression of um, niche growth uh, acceleration. And I actually think it's much more fraudulent in terms of that. But it's just had such a big grassroots with MLR, uh, MLS. Uh, and and I think that everybody in the U.S. keeps trying to mimic MLS. And, I mean, the secret that has always came with MLS, outside of the fact that it's been, you know, a 20, 25-year project, is that most of its growth came from franchise fees. Like, constant, constant franchise fees. Somebody buys in, that fee go gets split me amongst the owners, it adds as another revenue source in there, and then they continue on. And then another team gets added in and it becomes a revenue source. Oh, we have teams like Atlanta that have now found a way to like create ridiculous fan, um, uh, in, for lack of a better word, fan engagement and fan consumerism inside of it. Uh, where you're getting 70,000 people in a stadium on a regular basis inside, you know, the fake. Uh, Mercedes Dome. I, I say that because as a New Orleans fan, I, I, I refuse to accept their copycatness uh, until they force us to have to switch to Caesars. But, That's you know, right. uh, <laughs> 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 but like, yeah, you know, um, but they're able to put it in. But I feel like they've actually put together a plan of how to bring consumers, how to bring fans and how to get them involved in. But then, of course, soccer has had the, you know, the 40 plus 50 plus years of real deep uh, grassroots engagement. So when it comes to something like rugby, uh, you look at I, I, whenever people talk about the, they need to keep fixing the sport or it needs to be fast or whatever the on-field product it's, it's that insecurity where it's like the on-field product is fine. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Like it's neither more or less chaotic because you removed um, timing under scrum or you shortened the distance between uh, um, the uh, 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 oh my god, shortened the distance between the scrum or you 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 haste made more details on the TMO or you made the ruck line the ruck line a little bit uh, wider so that the crossover like it, none of that matters because in the end the people are not looking at what's on the field as the drain it's how do you set the story into it that makes the, the impact feel on the field so much more? And this is where I kind of came into the idea of the American sport versus European style. And I'd love for us to go into it. But uh, it kind of based off of the idea of the utilization of, one, individualism, and two, extreme boasting. Um, I think we have situations <laughs> like boxing and uh, even from, you know, football, so American football. Promote exactly, but it's it's not just promotion because rugby people do try and promote. It's just they don't create rival. There's not the the good guy versus the bad guy from whoever's perspective. It's always 
you know, we're just in outside of like maybe, you know, New Zealand, Australia and everybody against England. But aside from from those elements, like you don't have that like strong. I need almost like a gang like behavior behind each of the teams, at least for the moment of the game. It's a try. And that's of what? It's a tribalism. Exactly. And I think that's been one of the biggest issues that have cost rugby more and more because the traditionalism and the humbleness is great. It is great whenever it's like outside the game. But once you're starting to lead into an actual match, like I need fighting cousins to exist. Like we need to be fighting cousins at this. And that's what casual fans are going to connect into. They're going to be like, oh, who's the big dog who's going to be running this? Whether it's a Naya or whether it's uh, 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 an Owen or whether it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, a Porsche or whoever it is. At least let me know who the big dog is. Then let me get behind the rest of the team because somebody's speaking for me through this team so I can talk smack to the other fan base. And then now whatever happens in the end, we get to build and see where it goes from there. And I I just I don't feel like that gets enunciated. I know fan bases are aggressive to some extent in terms of like the songs and stuff over a European style. But this is, again, perspective from a xenophobic sports culture. (laughs) So um, uh, from that point, uh, you know, uh, can you give me a little bit on the your perspective? Well, I think you're right. We need to do a better job of um, telling stories. We need to do a better job of putting certain athletes front and center. Um, some of that's been done, but um, you know, not not really to a great enough extent. And that comes back to um, lacking a fan base to sort of really give it any kind of momentum. Um, if you think about um, say this World Cup right now, and you talked mm-hmm. about certain things, or, or I think the Goff article talked about um, Ilona, Ilona Mayer. Did I say that right? Il- Ilona Mar. Ilona Mar. Okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> you know, she was doing a great job on social media, but like, one of the questions is, well, why wasn't she playing? Right. Um, you know, uh, by all accounts, the, the USA women did quite a good job of promoting and, and doing things on social media. But at the end of the day, when you're at that tournament, you've got to deliver on the pitch. So right. it's not one or the other. It's not, they're not separate. It's all connected. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I think somewhere that, that Major League Rugby kind of struggles a little bit is to, again, put forward some of those superstars. Um, and, and especially when, you know, if you bring over Chris Rubshaw or Bastro or someone like that, it's yeah, like, as, a, as an icon, not just as an athlete, but as an icon or sports rugby icon, they, they kind of pass their sell-by date there as well. So the usefulness or utility of, of having those kind of athletes, it, it's a law of diminishing returns. And, and frankly, um, American rugby needs American stars. And we, we've got a few, and you've seen that with the advent of Perry Baker and Carlin Isles. But again, what's the progression when they retire? And so that's a different part of the conversation where you talk about um, sort of long-term player development, long-term strategy for, excuse me, for um, replacing those players and making sure, part of it is, is, is making sure that you're staying at the top of your game. 
And you've always right. got the best players on the on the team now. It's true. I would say that they were the best players on the team. They could be there still, or some of yeah. the best players, and they're also the biggest stars. But yeah. what comes next? And it, it's it's something, frankly, that all sports struggle with. I don't think that this is something that we should get down on on USA Rugby about. Particularly, like I live in Denver, um, and the Broncos suck, and it's yeah. been it's been that way since Peyton Manning left. And right. And, and they thought that Russell Wilson would make a big change, and it hasn't. Um, but <laughs> again, working situation here. that was kind of a, here's a savior versus right. having a process and, 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 and then a production line of talent behind it. Um, not really the best comparison, but other, other than just to say that that's an example of, of other sports struggling with, with the same kind of issue. Right. Um, I, I I wonder. Well, you know, they talk about it, it's cyclical, right? So, some years teams are up, some years teams are down, and it's a question Agreed. of how long that down period lasts, and and how long that up period lasts, and how many championships can you go and win in the meantime, and you know, winning championships is good for business. It brings in more more sponsorships, brings more fans mm-hmm. to the games, all kinds of things. Winning is absolutely good for business. <coughs> Excuse me. But it's not, you know, it's endemic to all sport. It's not, um, you know, succession planning is endemic to all sport. It's not um, just a USA rugby issue. No. I think when you have such a small talent pool, such a small fan base, such a small commercial capacity, that, that then it becomes more critical. I, I do think so. I, and I agree. Look, I, I, I feel like there, it, it, you do have, it, it is a reoccurring problem, I, of course, with any of these sports. I think my bigger issue, yeah, no worries. Y'all, Black Friday is coming up. The holidays are coming up. And this is the perfect time to be able to get your family, your loved ones, your friends, your rugby stuff. Not just another rugby team because they might not even care about that team. You can't, maybe not everybody's here rocking for the All Blacks or rocking for Ireland or, or just has a USA rugby jersey that they want to drop on. But you definitely can never go wrong with a casual rugby wear. Check it out at rugbyoutletmall.com. Uh, get the stuff that represents to the things that they already know like our our rugby life shirt representing the youtube culture of course get our rugby paypal shirt that is just a beautiful blue that goes along with it um you guys can get our hbcu rugby classic shirts if you want to represent for new and upcoming culture but more importantly guys because you're listening to this podcast right here I definitely want to make sure that you have something to go along with it to provide. So for every first time users, definitely use the code grow rugby for 20% off. That is grow rugby, G R E A U X rugby. That's two words, G R E A U X rugby. And you guys will get 20% off of any icono rugby shirts, any HBCU rugby shirts, and and just be able to fully embrace the merch. It's winter time. Suit up. Get representing for your rugby anytime, anywhere, any place. It's gonna be worth it, man. <laughs> hey, he wanted to be part of the process. <laughs> but um, what I was saying is, I, I do agree with you on the fact that these are issues that are reoccurring with with any sports program, niche or traditional. Um, and of course, it, you do have your your waves of years. 
I think the issue that I'm having with it now, and it, it continues to play out, and I'm hoping now gets addressed over the course of this next, you know, seven years, uh, well, six years, seven and, and ten years, is that the lack of ability to change or the lack of effort to adjust into it. So, you know, where I talk about USA Rugby – uh, in this, and I, I look, I, I understand uh, like the USA Rugby PR team and everybody. Like, it's tough because there's very, very few people doing way too many jobs at the same time. So I respect the notion of what goes on there. But whenever you have a player that's like a Perry or like you had with Carlin, irregardless of what you felt like he was on the field or what you had with Danny, um, like outside of a few smidge conversations, I feel like their stardom was absolutely wasted. And it wasn't even a factor that it had to even be um, created. I know for me personally, almost almost 70% of the people who would come to me who are outside of the rugby, outside of our rugby community, who would come to me about somebody in rugby, almost 70% of them talked about Perry Baker. Uh, it used to be Carlin Isles, and then it switched over to Perry Baker. And it would always be after seeing the highlights, whether it was the ESPN or seeing it on YouTube or seeing the clips around and get sent to me in my DMs constantly. But Perry Baker never got pushed further than what world a, a couple world rugby uh, uh, awards that did not get promoted high enough. And um, basically everything within HSBC – uh, outside of that element, I didn't see him talk on any other podcasts. I didn't see him talk on any YouTube channels. Didn't see him talk on any really traditional news. Like that's whenever you put a person who can perform on the field and simultaneously is good at speaking and also is uh, has enough uh, star power to attract new audiences. And this is where it's like I felt like USA Rugby has that ability to at least have the social corporate clout like they might not make a lot of money i can understand that but there's at least a uh official standing for them that if you're going to connect with a bigger company or if you're going to connect with a um a big uh um uh, marketing distribution source whether it's fox or whether it's a podcast or whatever like you can at least say your name and say hey can you put this guy on here and we yep. can maybe find a way to pay him to be our marketing tool. <clears throat> I feel the same goes with MLR. Like you talked about Chris Robichaud. Like the diminishing like players from overseas and coming to play to increase the quality of the field. While I'm not, I'm not against it, to be honest with you. I get it. But I feel like if you're going to bring somebody who's supposed to be a star from overseas or a star in their field, the return that they need to have has to be more than what plays on the field. At that point, they have to be the explanation on the game. They have to be a voice of, of the team because you're paying them more than everybody else, which we saw in, in the books and which basically part of the collapse of, of Austin and, and L.A. I, I mean, that and, you know, horrible stock management and fraud. But, I mean, still, <laughs> like, getting found out, you know, you're paying people under the table. If you're going to pay these guys under the table like this, you can't treat – them like a Russian oligarch plays, you know, soccer or or rugby in in Russia. Like you need to actually utilize them for a a financial return. And the other catch that ends up being though, a lot of those guys are not very interesting to talk to 
at the same time. So you're kind of in this like catch 22 where it's like, all right, he's good player, but so super soft spoken and, and is almost afraid of the camera, but you need him to be the marketing tool to actually bring more fans. <laughs> and, and I don't even think it has to be just Americans. It just needs to be interesting people who actually can do that. So whenever it goes to like building into the fan base, I don't think the fan base is actually that small in comparison to anybody else. If freaking pickleball can get stupid investments and pickleball that nobody cared about until literally 2020 is all of a sudden now the hot sport and can have their fan base and now has million dollar prizes. Like, I'm sorry, this, we have at least 1.5 million in the U S watchers and even if we take from overseas and you want to throw that into that little mix there there's enough of a fan base to say let's use them as an undercurrent but we need to throw the stars up we need to push our randy moss our tom brady of sort out there and make them more and 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 it didn't feel like that effort has ever been made it always feels like everybody is so worried about whether the game is on ESPN Plus or Fox, Fox F FS2 that nobody gets unless they have the super cable package that everybody already removed, or it's it's Peacock, which I doubt one actually can legitimately consider. But it just it feels like the worry goes so much on the distribution that is not real distribution because they're not marketing you any better. But it takes away everything that goes on with the storyline. So whenever one of the things I suggested was. USA Rugby probably should move from being just a management organization to an investment organization, meaning, yo, if you can't have enough of the uh, 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 enough money to put into new staff, yo, then get equity in some of these uh, other uh, uh, media, rugby media people and help <coughs> push them up into your your quarter like you clearly have a connection with espn of sort so push some of these other rugby people who are doing the media stuff whether it's a golf and he did with flow rugby which i mean you take that for what it is but at least there was something there but it's like push them into that element so that somebody else can be the talking point for you and help bring out maybe some of those extra voices that you yourself aren't directed. Same with MLR. And then it exists to how it feels with grassroots. Now let me know about who's the best high school players because now they're elevated up or who's the best college players. And now they can be elevated up because now we have people who are elevated and also know how to speak and can promote these guys and create the story. And now they have an initiative because there's somebody investing in them directly. But... Well, I think... I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. I Let's think go. You're, you're very passionate. And I think this serves to illustrate my point. And I'm guilty of it too. Um, rugby people, right? Rugby is is very often one of the most important things in your life. Right. And for lack of a better phrase, no one else gives a fuck. True. Right? So if you look at the Super Bowl, there's like 100 million people watch it globally. Right. Actually, sorry, in the US alone, 90 million people, something like that. Right. Um, what incentive does Fox or ESPN or anyone like that have to put rugby on when they might get a thousand or right. 500,000 clicks, views, whatever? So it's an economy of scale. I think what we need, and again, um, I think I mentioned this to you last time, but we, we just need a better perspective. 
a mm. better understanding of where we're starting from. You know, the NFL, Premier League soccer, they've been doing this for 100 years. Right. We are five years into a professional competition. We're 25 years into professionalism with a model that doesn't work. You know, I think I'm yeah. one of the only people that wasn't surprised when Wasps went bankrupt or Worcester or whatever. Again, I refer to the comment I made last time where if New Zealand rugby is selling equity to raise capital in the All Blacks, right? And they're the most successful marketable brand in rugby globally. Yeah. If they're not making money, what the fuck are we talking about? Right. The model isn't right. And we need to find a way to uh, create more fans. More participants leads to more fandom. We need right. to find a way to generate revenues from the creation of those more uh, participants. We need to fund infrastructure to support that participation growth. We need to generate revenue from that infrastructure and, and, and keep reinvesting. If you want something to grow, keep feeding it. And right. this is where we talk about, again, the extraction model versus the, you know, like fossil fuels versus sustainable um, sustainable energy, renewable energy, right? If, if, you, if you take long-term athlete development theory, it basically posits that to, to raise the standard of the game, the product that people think, because it's entertainment, right. um, you know, it's a mechanism. It's not, it's not really the product or the primary product. Um, if you bring all these resources in, you put all the talented coaches, referees, administrators, and athletes into this central funnel, and then you raise it as high as you can. That's what we've been doing, right? right. But it's basically a game of Jenga. And right. Jenga literally only ever finishes with ultimate collapse. Right. So we need, and, and rugby doesn't have the critical mass in the US or, or internationally anywhere, particularly, to, to sustain that kind of process. If you look at um, rugby versus football, soccer in the UK, there's 2,060 rugby clubs registered with the RFU. There's mm -hmm. 40,000 soccer teams, clubs, the, the English football pyramid, right? You've got four professional leagues. Then you've got non-league. Then you've got Sunday league, which is just fun. People having a kick about 40,000 clubs. And they don't have to travel halfway around the world or across a continent to get a game. They travel five minutes down the road or 10 minutes down right. the road. So it comes back to what I was saying before. People talk about money being the solution, uh, being the problem rather. Money is the solution in the sense that it will alleviate the logistical problem, right? There's too few people playing too little rugby too far apart. Right. So we need more people playing more and better rugby closer together. That, that also fits in like from an economic piece to the participation goals to creating and manufacturing more fandom through more participation. And if we can do those things and tie that into some sort of strategic plan that, that says we're going to build and develop the infrastructure and we're going to capture revenues to keep sustaining that growth and development. And, and then we've got some sort of story that we can tell to people that might, that might be interesting. And I don't think it's necessarily a story that we need to tell on an individual basis, although they're component parts with the athletes. But really, the biggest story we've got now that the World Cup's coming, right, we're the sleeping giant. Well, the World Cup's coming, so we, let's wake him up. Yeah. Or her up, right? Waking the giant. That's a great storyline. 
we're going to do X, Y, and Z to accomplish one, two, and three. And, and I think it's okay, especially, you know, one of the things that I haven't heard from, from anyone, particularly in rugby, is now that the World Cup's coming, we're, we're not talking about winning the thing. Well, part of the point of hosting a World Cup and part of why it was so humiliating for England to get eliminated in 2015 in the group stage is because when you host it, you've got home field advantage. You right. should be better. You're expected to try and win the fucking thing. So let's say, okay, we want to win the World Cup 2031, 2033. And, and let's use the next tournament in England for the women and then the two tournament or, or France. France and then England, yeah. Um, and then Australia to say, this is part of our process. Let's go and win the World Cup. We've got a lot of elements that, given the right support, the right development, the right time to develop in the, in the right sort of system, that we have a chance to actually compete. Right now, we're not competitive, really. The women right. are doing a better job. It's relative. I think the, the collegiate system helps. I don't think that's really the right model for the men's side of things, just because of the the, the scale of, of, of collegiate football and basketball. But that's okay. Title IX is a friend for the women's side of things. For the men, we have to take a slightly different approach. When mm. you talk about um, MLS and different stuff like that, remember, MLS is like the fifth iteration of professional soccer in the US. Right. Right? And right. and the World Cup, like they're talking about this World Cup being the catalyst for all this participation growth. We had all that participation growth with soccer prior to the World Cup and then a capstone where we were able to increase more participation for soccer and MLS was able to sort of capitalise part of that. But we, we, we're not doing it in the same order for rugby, so it's not necessarily apples to apples and, and we're making a lot of assumptions if we if we posit the idea that, well, the World Cup's coming, we're gonna, everything's going to be all right. But right. it's not. And, it, and again, MLS took 25 years to break even. Right. Um, Premiership rugby. That Premiership rugby and, and MLS are probably a better comparison point. But, but MLS has got better attendance figures. MLS has better attendance figures than the NBA and the NHL. Stadiums are bigger. But mm. scarcity breeds value, so NBA tickets are much more expensive. Right. You know, so it's... It's six of one, half a dozen of the other. And we just have to do a better job of taking a step back, giving ourselves some perspective and saying, okay, here's where we're at and here's where we want to be. I want to win the World Cup. I've always wanted to win the World Cup. I think America's capable of winning the World Cup if we right. do certain things. What we have to remember <clears throat> is winning is an outcome. It's the result of a process. So that, that process requires the right inputs. And, and frankly... You know, on the one hand, Eddie Jones would be good. I was watching a podcast, I think it was called the High Performance Podcast, and Eddie Jones said the first thing that he told the players is, I want you to be self-sufficient. Well, when we when we take that perspective, yeah, like, that would be a good thing right. for Eddie to come and say that to American rugby. But American rugby isn't looking for Eddie to tell them that they need to do the work. They're looking for him to come in and be the saviour. Right. And that comes back to the exceptionalism thing, you know, if you've got Tom Brady, you're always going to win. Well, not anymore. You know, or Russell Wilson, this is the solution. Well, the Broncos are the worst offense in the league. So it's that's where the silver bullet sort of thing comes into it. And I know Adam Hughes yeah. talks about it a lot, silver bulletism. I think I, I think the silver bullet for rugby is we have to say, 
this is our objective. And we all have to find a way to agree on what exactly our role is within that and work towards it. And if that means that you're filling the water bottles for, for an under eights team on a, on a Saturday morning, well, you're doing your part and we all have to, and this is where it comes back, you know, we, you see like Belichick, do your job. Well, that right. might, that, that's necessary. That's an important part. And we have to find a better way of making those people feel valued that they're contributing, not just, oh, if it's professional, it's all that matters because that's nonsense. Right. Now, where do the fans come from? Where, where do the players come from? Where do the coaches come from? We're importing all these, all these coaches that don't really understand American athletes or American sports culture. And, and I'm saying that from personal experience. I've, I've lived here a decade nearly. And it, it took me four or five years to really start to understand the psychology of it. Um, Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, you know, I, I, I first heard the phrase the sleeping giant when I was about 14. Mm -hmm. And I assumed that, that sport worked the same everywhere. Well, and this is where we come back to the xenophobia, yep. <laughs> the, the European model versus the American model. Well, there's no clubhouses. There's nowhere, you know, if you look at Infinity Park, right? Right. They still got porta pies next to the turf. So the community is using that, right? You shit in a big plastic bucket and there's no running water. So what right do we have to say we're going to win or even host the World Cup when we can't provide running water for our members? I right. took it for granted. I grew up in a place where there were showers, changing rooms. There was a bar, kitchen multiple revenue streams, multiple amenities, different things, value proposition. We don't have any of that in rugby. And that's part of what I'm talking about with infrastructure to support the participation growth. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and the American psyche, it, it just, I just want to play and I want to be the star on the team and stuff like that. And it's, it's about winning above all else, but there's a lot of other things that go into it. And it's community is such an integral part of rugby. You know, mm -hmm. when you read Adam Hughes's book, he talks about it's it's real stories, real people in their communities giving back. It's like there's a few clubs, there's people in there from from clubs that I've come into contact with or talked to and stuff like that. And it's like, oh, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. And we need to do a better job of sort of sharing those sort of things with ourselves at a grassroots right. level. We need to do a better job of sort of feeding some of that up the food chain because that's how we then start getting the superstar athletes to relate to fandom, to community game. But it, it, it just, I just want to play isn't good enough. Right. It's not going to get the job done. Right. And, 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 and that's true as well. Where you see a lot of people don't show up to training because they just want to play. And, and it's always the same old trope where there's five or six people running a club of 50. Right. And, and and it should be 50 people contributing, not just monetarily for dues. Right. Going out, working in the community, finding sponsorships, volunteering for fundraisers, <coughs> bringing in friends and family to support and, and, and watch and, and help grow that way. But it, I, I, I think I think really the silver bullet needs to be that we, we need to change. And that change needs to come in the form of growth and, and growth will come in the form of a whole range of elements, whether it's facilities or coach and referee education, uh, technology, management, um, 
communications, sponsorships, uh, other revenue streams, revenue generation. Um, but we, first and foremost, there's got to be an honest conversation. And, and we're not really prepared to have it. And, and again, that comes back to perspective. Where, right. where, where are we really at? Right. And, and we, we, we make assumptions like, well, and, and you did it and I've done it before, but like, why, aren't pe- why don't more people care? Why don't people care as much as I do? And that's just a fact of life. And our job is to try and make them see the benefit. But, mm. but ultimately, that's, that's going to take a long time. You know, is the is twenty thirty one a long enough run up? Barely. Yeah. Barely. You know, I went to the University of East London, right next to the Olympics, and and that was like a five six year run up, from when they were given the um when they were given the games to when it was delivered, and and yes, the government's involved and everyone's doing as they're told, and there's a whole lot of money coming in for it. Right. Um, but that's a five-year sort of build-up to create more participation and fund more infrastructure and education and stuff so that you've got that participant base. Um, some of it would produce talent that could compete, but the majority of it was to find or create fans that would want to watch it once the event arrived. So let's have a long-term strategy for that. We've got enough time, but we need to have that conversation now. I haven't seen anything other than really wishful thinking in terms of the bid stuff. And, and frankly... I don't understand having read things like the the London bid document as part of my studies mm-hmm. and, and what they had to put together in order to win the event it blows my mind that we even got the world cup yeah. okay we've got it now though so there's no point worrying about that but what are we going to do about it and we can't have the same old same old like we did with the sevens world cup where we just assumed it was going to happen we have to make it happen and right and that that comes from from all of us contributing at all levels all levels and it can't be just one person doing this or one group doing that and i think where where usa rugby is really struggling is this this sort of divestiture where they've split off and everything's into silos well we're fractured and we're we're we're, we're weaker that way right you know united we stand divided we fall I think it's 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 a little bit difficult whenever it says like we're we're so divided, but I also feel like at the same time we're divided because we're starting to have people define their roles a lot more. And to the point that you're made you made before, where it's it's almost a Belichickian do your job. Um, it now has these little separations where people are trying to focus in. Now that being said, now there's those conflicts that exist. Like I I think the 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 college conference battle is by far one of the dumbest wars, quote, quote, that's going on right now, even if I understand where both sides are coming from. And I I, I totally get the sides, but it goes to the fracturing that you speak of. But at the same time, I I do wonder that is a lot of the issues that we are seeing that comes from like maybe that lack of community or one person doing everything. It's starting to finally see rugby burnout because while we've only been professional, you know, five to 25 years. I mean, again, rugby really came in in strong entrance 1962. Uh, and and you saw, you know, national team elements, I mean, since or since the 19, 1920s, 1910s. Um, you know, that was 100 I, years I, ago, man. Say that again? That was 100 years ago. But that's my point. Like, get, get past that. Those glory days are gone. 
But that's that's what I'm saying. Like that's that's a that's kind of the, the where I go to. Where is the the what we have to do again? Because it feels like the same game has been repeated of saying, well, we need to grow grassroots. Well, and and I do agree with that. But it's like we've seen it with this play rugby, and then there was the the ambassador program that was funded for a little bit. And then it's try and get a ball in everybody's hand. But you have a situation like I know my friend Teresa in Baton Rouge, who she basically runs the youth rugby program by herself and, and tries to gather that. And I wonder, because there's the, the, the incentive has always been passion for the game and development that now people are starting to be like, what is the takeaway that I'm getting from it now? And it's it it's not adding up. The 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 math isn't mathing, as they say. And you know, people are starting to burn out, and that's why we're starting to see the steady decrease in the numbers because the perspective and the, to what you said, the perspective is getting skewed. It's how long do I keep pushing for more people and more unity and more community, but I'm the only one that's doing the work or I'm the coach and I literally have the job of 50 people. And of course I can ask the like from a college side, I can ask the players, but you know, they're college students. So they might not be really wanting to get in or from the club side, I can ask the other, the, the other players, but everybody's trying to live their lives and kind of social club it here and there for the most part outside of the D ones. And even that's a bring in. And then from the youth side, it's we're developing so much where it's, people I think are starting to burn out. That's why I always say like, it, it feels like the, the last echelon is the commerce and PR. And, and even speaking to your point of the, nobody cares, I, I agree, but I think it's even worse that nobody cares. And then nobody is actively and intentionally constantly trying to show it in the face of, of doing it. Like I, I just did a recording where I was like, yo, I remember in the early back in the nineties, I think one of the reasons why I actually seeded loving American football was movies like The Little Giants and uh, Remember the Titans. And, you know, you had these little stories that seeded into your childhood nostalgia, but it wasn't you directly playing and you weren't even really watching the game itself. But it always was a reference point. And we know like NBA, Space Jam, like I knew Michael Jordan because of Space Jam first before I knew him as a player. (laughs) And so it's like you have those elements, but I don't see us doing that from a a grand scale. And whether it's worldwide or U.S., it's indifferent. The problem still maintains the same where it's like, of course, New Zealand has to end up needing money because who the hell wants to who the hell's making anything that's kicking in outside of I need to participate. Where's the passive participation, I think, is is what gets missed. And that's what makes it care. And I feel like that's that part constantly gets lost. And so the fracture just comes because everybody's like, I did my part. I did my part and nothing's changed. The team still sucks. We, we're getting to Rugby World Cup, but we went bankrupt the last time for sevens. And, you know, what what are the results that I'm getting to see out of it? And it's like that's where the culture changes. And maybe sometimes I get very uh, centric, centralized into – all right, now it's time to hype up individual efforts. Now it's time to be a little capitalistic. Um, you know, maybe it's we need to use, find a way to gravitate other people's uh, platforms because, you know, we just might not have the logistics to be a clubhouse country. But we we know the high school, 
We know the college team, maybe we need to find a way to reevaluate that element and remember what it is that we're trying to build. And I, I love the fact that you say we want to win the Rugby World Cup. Like maybe this is what it's needed to say we need to win the Rugby World Cup. It's, and, and that's why I always keep maybe lambasting hard on the European system. Not so much that it's bad, that it's just like maybe it's too much community in the sense of everybody has to be on the same page. And it's more like you have to have maybe a few really invested, really centered, really um, incentivized leadership groupings that kind of drag the rest of the 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 organization because the group thought just is not group effectivity. It's just group idea, you know? Um, I, th- I think the main point that we have to be a lot capitalistic. Yeah. If you look at um, youth sport in America versus, say, the NFL, for example, um, youth sport as a collective, and that's all sports that are involved in youth sport, it generates about 15, 16 billion a year. So, so the right. fifth major sport or the fifth major league sport in America is, is youth, youth sport. sports. Yeah. And so there's an awful lot of revenue there, but we, we, we have to ask, where's that money going? Um, right. and, and as a community, all we do typically is spend money and we try right. to bring money in. You know, it, it sickens me every year because this is the same model from USA Rugby where World Rugby's just giving them handouts. But you see the national team players, you see um, every spring, once, once people know they're going to nationals, out come the go out come the GoFundMe's, right? Yeah. That's adults asking other adults to pay for their hobby. Well, what's my return? What's the benefit? Do I right. do I feel good? Okay, that's a benefit. But you know, benevolent benevolent budgets are are a quarter of the size of marketing budgets. So if we think about that, then then the marketing budget, okay, that's sponsorship, advertising. What's right. the return on investment for sponsors? How can we make sure that we're delivering those benefits and, and then leveraging those benefits as much as possible to, to make sure that sponsors stay engaged at a community level all the way up to the national team level? And, and so that's where we have to be capitalistic about it. I think that we also have to, you know, we talked about this before, focus on where do we spend that money and, and so own part of the supply chain. If you look at World Rugby, they just bought Rugby Pass. Yep, I saw that. Rugby Pass owns 50% of the rugby network. So that's World Rugby owning part of the supply chain. It's an over-the-top subscription. So I think long-term, you're going to see things like the rugby network get all of the TV deals instead of Flow Rugby for for MLR because they partnered with the MLR in terms of Rugby Pass and and, and MLR owning the rugby network. But you're going to see that with, with the Six Nations, World Cups, other things. And I wouldn't be surprised long term if if the rugby network is the is the platform that is presenting the World Cups 2031, 2033. I wouldn't you be know, surprised either. Part of the way that world rugby might be able to help MLR sort of stop the rot in terms of bleeding money um, by feeding money into the, into the rugby network for for investment or for um, TV deals, because these big companies that we want to do it aren't going to do it for us. And it's similar where you think about a lot, a lot of the issues I think with women's rugby is that they're expecting the men 
or the men's side of things to to sort of change their perspective or approach and, and do it for them and it's they're not going to they've got no incentive to, right. to change their their approach and so we have to find ways to make make them want to do it um i i, I wonder you know look it's all connected it's all yeah. connected we can't we can't do one without the other so we need a yeah. better sort of structure in place where we've identified roles and responsibilities you know what is the role of schools and club rugby what are the roles of um community like sros or, or state rugby organizations what's the role of mlr what's the role of usa rugby right um i don't think that they should be necessarily siloed or divided into um oh well, we do this for men we do this for women we do this for college, we do this for youth, you know, because a lot of the jobs and the roles and the responsibilities or the tasks are the same. So it's not necessarily based on, on we, we're siloing it based on who the customer is versus siloing right. it based on what the role is. And so I think that's a structural change that needs to come. I, I, I think that um, if, if we're better organized in terms of, okay, we know that USA Rugby based on, on information from world rugby, stuff like that is responsible for the collective benefit of the members and that it's responsible for training and education and sort of quality control, quality assurance, which is what a union does. Mm -hmm. Then, Whether it's a labor union or a sports union, then we can find out more about what's the role or responsibility for, for the clubs, for the collegiate programs. You know, when you talk about, um, collegiate rugby alphabet soup right i think usa rugby needs to give up the ghost you know ncr have done a fantastic job they're growing every year they've got about 60 to 70 percent of all collegiate programs mm -hmm. right it's an overwhelming majority so then let's find a way to make sure that that works within the whole ecosystem versus right. battling against each other it's like two big oil companies trying to extract all the resources from one state or the other and sell it right. to the group to the same customers um if, if we can find a way that we have a, a a more defined role or or capacity for delivery for clubs and school teams that feeds into the collegiate stuff then all of a sudden we've got a more aligned pathway at the base right the next job is well mlr fits in there in line with you know the state rugby organizations <coughs> where like all-star teams and stuff like that well that's where your academies or your your feeder system comes in right, right now and it, come back to what i said about ltad and, and jenga and not having the sides of the pyramid it's it's a case of of not necessarily well first of all yes you've got to do your job but i think that starts with knowing what the job is you know everyone's out there to try and win right well yeah because winning frankly is more fun than losing every week of course yeah, i played on a, a, a my my secondary school team when we were in year seven eight and nine i don't think we won any games <laughs> my club team was out there winning county championships every other year so it, it was six or one half a dozen of the other but it wasn't what kept us going it wasn't why we were participating winning wasn't the be all and end all and and beyond sort of ninth grade then you start to be more competitive, take it more serious, learn how to train and, and, and be better athletes and, and more competitive. Well, that that's fine. And that's where you start to see players leave and go into 
um, academy systems, whether it's rugby union, rugby league. We had a couple guys end up playing for the London Broncos Academy and stuff like that. Went on right. to semi-pro careers in rugby league. Some lads went on to play semi-pro, pro in union, kids that I grew up playing with or against. Um, but again, it comes back to, you know, know what your job is and then do it well. And right. I, I think that um, I, I'm not sure that uh, that USA Rugby knows specifically what their job is. You know, first and foremost, they're a union. And so they're supposed to represent the members. They've they've devolved power to all these different groups and everyone lapped it up. Like, yes, now we're in charge. But in charge of what? What is your right. job? You still haven't defined your role. I was on a call for, um, well, I won't name names, but one SRO, AGM, in the summer, <coughs> excuse me, and the president of the organization advocated to the adult clubs, do not bother with youth programs because they're going to leave and go to college somewhere else and never come back and play. It's a waste of time. Well, Michael, I was back home in London two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and the only thing keeping the club alive is the youth members. Yeah. The program. The men have gone from six to three men's teams if they're lucky. Right? There's a 30 to 40% reduction in, in men's rugby participation in England right now at community level. Well, that's basically through across the board. So when you've got that lack of participation, you've got that lack of fandom or that lack right. of reaction of fans. And that's why you see people like Worcester and Wasps going under. There's just not enough fans. And again, that's back to perspective. And, and rugby's got this whole, some of it's entitled sort of attitude. Some of it's holier than thou. And, yeah. And and we're all guilty of it. I'm, I'm as well. I, you know, I love to be right. But um, I, I think it, it's a it's an important conversation to have. And and if we, if we are serious about hosting these events, about making all this money that they're talking about, like, at what point is it not just wishful thinking? At what point are we going to make it a reality? What is the plan? Right. And, and again, we 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 had a, a strategic plan sort of announcement come out from USA Rugby 2019. Yeah. Uh, um, not a lot's really been done. There's no deliverables. And frankly, why do we have, well, for example, why do we have Rugby Colorado and Rocky Mountain Rugby as the state rugby organizations, ones for youth and ones for adults, when it's the same job? Right. So it's not based on, or it shouldn't be based on who the customer is. It should be based on what is the roles and responsibilities of that organization within the ecosystem. What, Where do they fit into that framework? What input are they providing to the process so that we get the outcome that we want? And again, then there's got to be parts of those organizations that are dedicated to um, some of it is, is participation and welfare. Some of it is, is the commercialization, the capitalist approach, you know, shameless plug, but like citizen sports, we're, we're talking about um, sponsorships and benefits of sponsorships now to provide return, return on investment. We're, we're talking to people about how to, capture different revenue streams or diversify revenue streams right now. And this is the same thing with the pub. In the end of the day, we were overly reliant on single revenue stream, which was concession. Right. Um, we needed to diversify. We weren't able to do that. COVID and other things aside, um, it, it just comes down to you overly reliant on a single revenue stream. Um, 
USA Rugby sells memberships first and foremost. It's a, it's a right. representative body. So, again, that comes back to fan subscriptions, membership subscriptions. How do we increase the value proposition of the sport, of that membership, so that our product, our membership, is more valuable than soccer or NFL or, or whatever? Forget right. the, the, the end of the, the pathway in that instance, the, the destination. Okay, the NFL is a far more attractive destination than MLR or Premiership Rugby or anything like that because of the money right. involved. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's true for, say, Premiership Soccer versus MLS. That's right. But, but at the end of the day, the value proposition, people, we can deliver better value at the grassroots. And, you know, it comes back to like, can we provide running water? Do we have showers, changing rooms and stuff? And I know that that's not necessarily the American way. And we're talking about that being a more European thing. Well, the showers, the showers and the bathrooms thing, I think, is actually a lot more. That one is uh, well, like for a place like Infinity Stadium. I, I'm a little surprised it's still using porta potties. Like you think, for as much as gone into it, it, it would be able to improve. But continue with your point. I'm sorry. Um, but that's one of the key differentiators. I'm gonna have to yeah. plug my laptop in. Sorry, to change the view. Hey, no worries. No worries. Um, but that's where that's where we can really increase the value proposition and make it more attractive. And not only that, but if you have those kinds of facilities and infrastructure, then you can rent it out to other sports and that's a new generation. That's a new revenue stream. Which is what we see even with NFL teams, like the, the, now the new development of these stadiums, a lot of it is so that you can sell either PSLs, uh, you know, the, the, the specific seats, or you can be able to rent it out for events. So you have the 24 seven, I think, one of those elements that, like, uh, what's his name, uh, who used to own uh, uh, Dr. Bus, did with uh, Laker, Laker, um, uh, uh, Lakers uh, Arena initially was to make it a year-round event home. Yeah, um, I think SoFi was a big one for that, right? When they yeah, did yeah. it, they're, they're no longer just stadiums; they are entertainment centers, community entertainment developments. Um, you know, there's one in Colorado Springs for the soccer team and they've got uh, all kinds of retail and, and housing and hotels and things like that going into it. Right. Um, it's There's a lot of stuff that's already been done and 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 continuing to be done in, in terms of diversifying and, and, and making these things more appealing to business and investment. And and I think that there's an opportunity for rugby to, to get in on that, especially with um, the World Cup coming. But none of that's going to be available if we're committed to simply putting that into college or NFL football stadiums, mm -hmm. right? So what's the legacy impact there or impact beyond? In the Olympics, they call it legacy impact. In, in rugby, they call it impact beyond. But mm -hmm. if you've not built any facilities or infrastructure or stadium, then what's left behind that you people can see and rally around and go to and benefit from, you know, the reason that uh, England or the RFU are so wealthy, so to speak, is, is Twickenham. Mm -hmm. Same thing with soccer. You've got Wembley. Like, now, I take it for granted. We've got a national stadium. That's a bit difficult given the logistics of the United States. But um, that's fine. Let's just build more. Right. Still move them around. Because if you do it in the right way and generate these revenues across the board, 
then um, they're going to be self-sufficient or sustainable anyway, whether you've got all your national team games there or just one of four national team games there. Say you build four national stadiums. Great. That means you've got four times as much opportunity as England with just Twickenham. Right. I think I think we get very hung up on sort of the challenges. We have we have big ideas and big ambitions in the US, but we're also afraid to to speak them. You know, like I said, I, I don't think there's anything wrong in saying we want to win the World Cup. We, yeah. we should be saying that because that's a rallying point. Let's go and win the World Cups. Um We've got various different approaches to to how that might be possible. And the players is a serious element of that, but it's not the only element of that. Right. And and you know what? If you don't try, you've already failed. So let's try and win the World Cups. Let's not just show up. Let's not just be there to take part because that's not the point of a World Cup. You show up to win. That was one of right. the issues I think. I, I, I think... Now, I don't know so much because... Obviously, I'm not involved with the team, but my impression was with the Women's World Cup, they were just very happy to be there. And I think after the extended cycle and COVID and all of that extra training and commitment and stuff like that, that was that was warranted. But um, where's the where's the belief to say, well, we're not just here to show up and make up the numbers, but we're here to compete and try and win. And right. That was one of the best things I think when you see with Canada is that. I think they had more belief this time than they did when they made the final in 2014. Right. You know, and and I know some of the players from there that used to coach Tyson Bukaboom, and I knew some of the players that were on the squad in 2017 and 2014, and, and there seems to have been a mindset change that has eluded the, the women's Eagles. I think that they, they, they got to a point where there's a lot of players – playing in in england they're they're in the premiership they're earning a little bit of money there's yep. the status that comes with that but it's also you have to produce that's where you do have to do your job right at the end of the day when you get to a world cup that's where winning is the be all and end all and we're just making up the numbers is is not good enough so i think I, i'm sort of waffling a bit but like that's where a mindset change is more important in terms of the performance i think that we need to be able to state certain things like hey we don't want to just make the quarterfinals we don't want to just make the semi-finals we want to win the damn thing right and then have an honest conversation about well what does it take to win what, this what is required what is required for that to happen and if that means professionalizing the wpl then so be it let's have an honest right. conversation about what we need to make that happen. And, and, you know, and you see stuff with the WPL, they're, they're doing a lot right now to, to try and inspire and, and um, sort of kick off this movement. What about right. time? And I'm glad that they're doing it themselves because they've been waiting for a long for time. Somebody for somebody else to do it. In charge to do it and they don't care. Yeah. You know, all the conversations we have and it, it, it just, it always ends up coming back to people are only really pissed off now that the men didn't make the final, make the championship, make the tournament. Well, where's the outrage that, you know, the, the women, women didn't make the semifinals, that the women <laughs> didn't make the final or the semifinal. Yeah. In large part, because they didn't have the funding. Where's the yeah. outrage that the WPL was decimated by all of the talent going to play in England. All that did was make England stronger. 
Yeah. Because week to week, their players and their talent pool has a higher level of competition where our developmental players are now the top players and they're not getting any experience competing against better athletes. And the ironic part of it all is, even with the England <coughs> side to that, I the, the, the starting point for the England side and England's women's side and the U.S. women's side are not that significantly different. The starting points for for both the side for the players when they started playing, etc. I don't feel like it's that significantly different in terms of uh, early development. Um, for I, w- I would say that was true maybe ten years ago, even even five years ago. Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. But with the professionalization, it switched it up. Uh, yes and no. I think a lot of it, you, you know. Well, actually, like I was back home a few weeks ago, like I said, and and, and Beckenham ladies they won the league. Well, first of all, their league got promoted versus they got promoted over the over the last sort of 20 wow. years. But I've got friends, um, you know, there's girls playing on that team that I grew up, they lived a block down the street. And they're now in the championship, they're fifth. And you've got little old Beckenham playing against teams like Bath. Well, they're never going to get promoted into the premiership because they don't have the infrastructure, the stadia, stuff like that. So they're as high as they can get and they they... They got there because they won the league last year mm-hmm. and the team was promoted. But prior to that, the division sort of, there were more leagues created below um, in terms of the whole the whole pyramid sort of thing. Um, but, you know, I remember when they started, I was probably 14 or 15 and I had mates. You know, when I was seven, eight years old and I told you about what inspired me the last time we had that conversation, um, there was a girl called Alison playing on my team as, as from my earliest rugby memories. She was one of the best players on the team. Yeah. My coach, my coach Terry, growing up from age nine to 19, um, his daughter Liz was on our team for a few years. Like, there, there have been girls playing from six, seven, eight years old. I don't know if you know, there's a girl called Morgan Freeman. Yeah. She plays, uh, she was in, she played for Premier Rugby Sevens. She's, they played USA U20 stuff like that. She went to Lindenwood. Um, I'm her dad's one of my best mates. We did our level two coaching course together 20 years ago. Um, she she's had 20 years of rugby. Like, it's not very. Tr- I just don't think it's as true anymore as as we we think it is. It's still not uncommon that players are joining or starting to play rugby and find it in college. That's still very true for all women's mm. rugby, really. But there's still an awful lot more exposure at a younger age range. And and you see it with like, I think Nolly Waterman, she used to play mm-hmm. with her brothers. She played as a seven, eight year old. So that's where we really need to get into. I don't think that's going to be overly helpful come 2033 World Cup, but beyond that in the 2030s and 2040s, those seven and eight year olds are going to be the stars of the future. So again, that comes back to infrastructure and supporting the growth in the community and the grassroots. <coughs> I just, I just, I just wonder. That it's not one size fits all. I think, right? Uh, you know, like I said, the silver bullet is is change, and that change needs to come in terms of growth at all levels. Right. I think growth is is a better perspective and understanding of what the roles and responsibilities are. I think growth is is being adult about it and saying, yes, we want to win the World Cup. Now, is that a pipe dream right now? Yeah. But we're hosting them. We're never going to get a, a, a better opportunity to try and win one. To right. bring in the investment that we need as a catalyst to to accomplish those things. So 
Let's start trying to rally around it. That's the story we need to tell. This is the awakening of America. This is the right. awakening of American rugby. The true awakening. And right now, it just doesn't seem to me, you know, if we're focusing on, on single athletes as, as the entirety of the story, you, you've got a couple chapters of the book, but not the whole thing. Right. Um, you know, I like, I like what Adam was doing with his book, This Is Rugby, but a lot of it's focused on adult clubs and, and well, there's youth as well. And what are those clubs doing to have youth programs to feed into it? And it's just all of this. Well, that's where it is. The group think it's like, Oh, well, we're the best. Well, we're not. So let's have a conversation about what it takes to be the best. Right. And I, 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 I agree. I agree. I will make one caveat on that, though, and I feel like we keep sidestepping. We always talk about the Rugby World Cup in 2031, but I think we also well, need to remember that we... And 2031 20, 20, and 2033, but I think we also need to remember 2028, the Olympics, because I think that one will actually do... Uh, will be the true ripple effect. Win the 2028 Olympics, men and women, then it sets off to 2031, uh, and 2033 because it sets that that aspect and honestly that I, I think that should be as much as the pressure on as as anything else because they do have um you know as you said they're all connected it's all connected but aside from that i think on that point uh man i, I don't know if there's anything more that we can add at this point but i think we can re, re, re rediscover it um but i'm thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed this conversation thoroughly enjoyed Sorry this about conversation. The polls. <laughs> <laughs> you know this, this is basically what it is but um is there anything that you want to leave with people um uh on 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 any new ventures you're doing or anything that you want to uh uh be able to promote basically um yeah with um with citizen sports we we're here to help. If, if you're looking for sponsorship, if you're looking for advice, if you're looking for more affordable kit and equipment, uh, email me, president at citizensports.com. Um, just as an example, we did a pilot program in the spring with Pirate U Sports, engaging local businesses. Uh, we were able to reduce the cost of participation by about 90, 95% meaning that our kids got 10 weeks of rugby coaches uh, coaches fields are all paid for they got a hat ball two jerseys a hoodie a polo they got tickets to the eagles chili game uh, about 400 dollars worth of value and it cost them 30 bucks nice so we're here to help and and continue to try and make rugby grow um I've got nothing but time for people that are putting in time and, and paying it forward. Um, it's about youth, it's about development, it's about growing, and um, hopefully soon it'll be about tying that into making us win the World Cups. Right, and the Olympics. Sevens is a bit different, and it's not really my area of expertise. <laughs> I always, it was too much like exercise uh, as a player. <laughs> Last time I played seven seriously, I was under 17, 18. We won the county championship. I think I mentioned that before. But um, I was really only there to kick the drop goals. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone I mean, else look, look, look. 
tackling. Sometimes it is what it is. Perspective. Sometimes it just it is what it is. But <laughs> well, I was aware of my limitations, and that was running was one of my limitations. <laughs> <laughs> oh respect the awareness respect <laughs> no mick man thank you so much man and uh i can't wait to do this again because uh yeah we're gonna have to make this more regular thing no more no year year round apart or so thank you so much for taking the time to watch this guy thank you mick love the conversation can't wait to do it again uh guys thank you for watching rugby swag listening wherever it is formerly known as grow rugby please check out some of our other episodes obviously uh last couple last week talked about a little bit of rugby entrepreneurship the week before talked uh about what usa rugby can do to improve no what we can do to improve usa rugby uh, and of course, we got some great guests. I had uh, uh, Cassette Sharon Ganji a couple weeks back, uh, had uh, Theo Bennett uh, three weeks ago. We've had Naya Tapper, we have had Kyle and Tiana Granby of Roots Rugby, we have had Blaine Scully, we've had amazing guests, Cheddar Emba, we've had amazing guests from all formats of, of rugby and continue to do that while also wanted to bring you guys the new the information directly it's not all guests all the time but it is all value all the time and i want to thank you guys for taking the time but most importantly i want you to know that i hope that you are happy i hope that you are healthy and absolutely the top of it all i hope that you know that you are truly truly highly favored until next time, y'all. Cheers.